Christ Jesus our Lord. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the nations. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful words. Let us bow our heads in prayer. <laughs> Almighty and majestic God, who is praised and worshipped in heaven and here on earth, grant us in our poverty the grace to worship you in righteousness and to serve you according to your good pleasure. As we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, may we stand in your holy presence even if we cannot see it with our physical eyes, may we be lifted up into your presence by Christ, where we can truly revere you and where our faith may adore you. Lift up our thoughts and desires to yourself, sanctify our worship, bless our service, and may the praise of our lips be pleasing to you. Hearken to our prayers before your throne of mercy, and bestow upon us in your grace all things necessary for our blessedness and for our continued uh, for, the, for our church to be able to continue in its worship and ministry. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 377, Jesus, Where'er Your People Meet. Thank you. 
Scripture says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let us confess our transgressions with the prayer in the bulletin. Holy God, Father most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger, nor chasten us in your wrath. Forgive us for our iniquities. Heal us from our sin, for we are troubled. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our sin disturbs us, O God. We are troubled by how we have hurt others. We are troubled by how they have hurt us. Your ways are right, O righteous God, and whenever we have refused to follow them, we have found out how right they are. Have mercy on us, O God. Holy God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us for the sake of your Son, who died to free us from our sins. To you be honor and glory. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of their sin. That root of sin that, that feeds all the other sins in our lives has been cut. So even though we see evidence of sin in our lives, that root is cut by Jesus Christ And we may now rejoice and be glad that we have been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Let us say together, praise be to God. Our call to obedience is from Colossians chapter 4. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you took, it's possible to use this uh, paragraph, if you will, um, without God. I heard this done at a wedding once. Uh, A niece of mine was was married, and I was able to sit back and just observe and watch. And uh, the person officiating removed all the references to Lord and God and Christ and, and I, you know, no one would really have known it was Colossians 4 unless you knew your Bible, but I picked up on it right away, and I thought, this is really something. It intrigued me because it, 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 it sounded very lovely and beautiful, poetic, but it had no, no uh, you know, spiritual um, value to it, and it definitely had no connection to God or Christ. So it's possible to take the words of Scripture and gut them of the things of God, references to God, and then they just take on some kind of, of uh, earthly, maybe some kind of earthly meaning for us, but lose any sense of where that comes from and how this takes place and overcoming the power of sin. Um, so I was fascinated by that and also horrified <laughs> at the same time. But we should pay attention to that. That, that the words God and Lord and Christ and, and those kinds of things are essential 
for understanding everything else is talking about, forgiveness and love and all those other uh, parts of, of, our, um, of our life. So this is our call to obedience, and the only way that we can do these things, love and forgive and uh, be at peace, is because of Jesus Christ and following him, being united to him by the Holy Spirit. This is God's will for us in Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 348, Jesus with thy church abide. Jesus with thy church abide, be her Savior, Lord, and guide, while on earth her faith is tried, we beseech thee, hear us. Keep her life and doctrine pure, grant her patience to Trusting in thy promise, sure, we beseech thee, hear us. May she one in doctrine be, one in truth and charity, winning all to faith in Guide the poor and blind, seek the lost until she find, and the broken-hearted bind, we beseech thee, hear us. Save her, growing cold, make her watchmen strong and bold, fence her Just saying that God be, uh, hear us as we beseech him, let us bring our petitions to our Heavenly Father. Most blessed God, our Father, your love burns bright and hot in a gracious and, and beautiful way. With such holy love and grace you have touched us, 
grace that surprises us with unexpected mercy and kindness, grace that brings us salvation even when we were sinners, grace that sets us in the way of righteousness through Christ. Inflame our hearts with love for Christ, that we might love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Hear our prayers now as we pray for greater love for Christ. Merciful Father, you send the rain upon the just and the unjust. We pray for those in need in our communities, for the elderly, the homebound, the mentally ill, the jobless, the hungry, the fearful, the vulnerable. We pray for the people in Florida who are recovering from the hurricane, for others who are recovering from disaster. We pray that you would demonstrate to them your mercy, that you would send them aid. We think of the people who were digging out of the earthquake in Morocco. We pray that you would give them the aid they need. If they reject you, give them more than they expect so that they might be led to give thanks to you and praise your name. And if we begrudge your generous mercy to sinners, we pray that we would remember your kingdom and the teaching of Christ who said, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So send them all relief, O God, we pray, and may your church be engaged in that kind of aid. Hear our prayers for those in need. Lord, we pray for the nations of this world that are powerless before you, who act not according to your wisdom in what is good. And so we pray for justice and peace in Syria and Afghanistan, Ukraine, Pakistan and India, North Korea, Haiti, and in the cities of the United States. We pray for wise and responsible political decisions, even though our leaders act out of their own self-interest. Make the way for nations and people to live beside each other without conflict, and for just governments to be established. We ask you would stop the aggression of Russia in Ukraine. And while leaders and governments struggle and negotiate for their own interests, only by your hand will there be order in this world, and so we pray for your hand to bring order. Being citizens of your kingdom, make us peacemakers in the name of Jesus Christ, and that we would practice that radical righteousness that he taught where we walk another mile with those who would force us to walk one mile. Here are our prayers for the nations of this world. Christ our Savior for the church, we pray as it grows and new churches begin around this world and even in the Detroit metropolitan area. We pray for all Christians that we may be faithful witnesses to your salvation in Jesus Christ and that your kingdom would be revealed in this world. Here are our prayers for the missionary work of the church, and especially for Sam Fulta in Asia and Mike McCabe in South Korea as they teach and proclaim Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers for the church and its missionary work. Almighty Father, we also ask for your care and grace for the church gathered here. We pray for those in poor health who are discouraged or grieving, who are weary or need help. We pray for Eduardo and Shirley, for Bob and Fawn, for Leah and Frida, for Jeff and Linda, for Tammy's family, for Becky and Margaret, Jane, Angie, Bob, 
Vicki, Tom, the Millward family, Phil, Karen, Dominic, and others we name to you in silence. Heal them, O God, restore them, and renew their Christian faith and obedience by your word and spirit who is present and abiding with us in holy power, we pray that you would stir them up with comfort, with a faith that is, that is set firmly on Jesus Christ. We pray for those with other needs in this congregation, for those who have work-related needs or financial needs. We also pray for our students in school here or away at college. Hear our prayers. Grant to us, all of us, the grace and strength for another week in which we may serve you and others with joy and with thanksgiving, no matter what our circumstances are. Receive our prayers, O Father, who sent your Son for our salvation, and the Holy Spirit who helps us to pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our offerings to the Lord. Please be seated.
And we join in praying for uh, God's illumination on our reading this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness to us. And we thank you for making yourself known to us, that you have revealed yourself uh, over the ages through prophets and um, especially the revelation um, through your Son and uh, through this uh, the Bible that we all have and um, can read and have uh, such easy access to. And as we uh, go to read this morning, we pray that your spirit would be upon us, that we would not only understand the words we read, but that in our hearts and in our souls we would know you better, that we would um, be empowered to believe what we hear, and um, that it would stick with us and edify us and change us in the days and weeks to come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading this morning is not an Old Testament reading, uh, but is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Verses 38 to 47. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for you are with me. They comfort me. In the presence of mine enemies, my cup overflows all the days of my life. Our epistle reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Finally, our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of John. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word of the Lord.
I don't know if churches are desperate or bored, but many are changing up their life together, making their worship more appealing, more appealing to um, the general culture out there, or making their message more attention-grabbing, or making the church's life more like our life in general society. We uh, talk about a vision for the church, and churches typically, that's a word they use, having a vision. I think it comes... I mean, yes, the scripture refers to people without a vision will perish, but I'm not sure that means the same thing as a corporate vision or a vision that works for corporate America, uh, a business kind of vision. That's really not in mind with the scripture, but we talk about visions, and I think a lot of the visions that churches have about who they are and what they're doing are rather stuffy and clinical. Acts doesn't give us a vision like that. It gives us a story. And in that story is the church gathered around Jesus Christ. And ever since that story that we heard read, or at least part of, it, part of the, the whole story read in Acts chapter 2, ever since that story has been given, it has illuminated what the church does. Jesus Christ created a new community for us and a new way of life. John chapter 10, that last line said that he came to give life and give it abundantly. The book of Acts tells us about this new life of Christ as it began in the world. And within the first two chapters of Acts, we find all the basic components of this new life, at least the major components. And and I will go through and talk about those components. I want you to realize, though, that that's sort of changing the way it's given to us. It comes as a story. But to understand the story and understand how it, it uh, develops and lays out and what it's talking about, it's important to explain it. And so I will talk about these components of this new life that Christ gives us. Now, one of those components is the risen Jesus Christ. He is the fundamental center of our new life. The story of Acts begins with the risen Jesus Christ. Acts was sort of like part two for the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both of these writings, and uh, Acts just picks up right away with Jesus having been raised from the dead. Jesus raised to new life. Jesus wasn't just raised back to continue existing in this life of sin and death that this world knows. Instead, he was raised to new life. And during the 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. He conversed with his disciples. He told them that he would empower them to be his witnesses to the, the whole world. Jesus ascended into heaven to rule over heaven and earth. And, and this is all part and parcel of that new life. The new life is based on the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There's the risen Jesus Christ. We, we get that part of um, this new life that that uh, Acts talks about, and then there's the Holy Spirit, a basic component of our new life. Jesus poured out the Spirit upon his disciples. So we heard the very end of chapter 2. That was our reading this morning. But, of course, there's the beginning of chapter 2, and that begins with Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit on his disciples the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is the Spirit of the new life of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of life. And the Spirit now resides within the group of Christ's disciples, The Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church, upon the disciples, and so now the Holy Spirit dwells in the church and with the disciples in a continuing way, not a coming upon a prophet like in the Old Testament, giving them the power to speak prophetic words and and to uh, reprimand the nation of Israel, and then, then it's done, 
and the prophet, the time of the prophet's over, and Israel has to wait for another prophet to come along and the Spirit to take hold of that prophet. But in this case, the Holy Spirit's poured out upon the church and continues to reside with the church in a permanent way. So uh, the early church, the Christians, were bound to Christ by the Spirit, and the Spirit was at work among them. That's another component of this new life. And then there's the Word of God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached the message about Jesus Christ. And that word he proclaimed was focused on the great acts of God's salvation. You can go back and read it if you'd like today in chapter 2. But Peter, after the Holy Spirit's poured out, Peter stands up and, and speaks. And this, again, is Peter who was the wimp. And that's a nice way of saying it. Who ran away when Jesus was arrested. That same Peter, now with the Holy Spirit, stands up and proclaims what Christ had done, what God had, uh, God's great act of salvation. He referred to the prophets, uh, namely Joel, who said the Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of what God would do. There was the promised Holy Spirit that the prophets spoke about. Peter uh, got up and said, that Holy Spirit, that promised Holy Spirit, has been poured out upon this group of people who were gathered around Jesus Christ. The prophet's word has been fulfilled. Peter's proclamation was how Jesus was killed. He goes into some length talking about how Jesus was killed, crucified, but God raised him up. Peter preached that Jesus had given the gift of God's new life, the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that was the big event on that day, on Pentecost. And so Jesus explains why the Holy Spirit was poured out and, how, and then how Jesus had ascended to rule over all. This was the word of God proclaimed by Peter, and thousands heard it. And then there's faith and repentance. That's also in the story. Really, our reading picks up with that. The people who heard Peter preach, many of them were cut to the quick. They responded, well, they asked, what shall we do? And Peter told them what they should do, and it's all about faith and repentance. When you hear the word of God, when you hear the message of Christ, the response needs to be faith and repentance. These are essential components of our new life. We can't be a Christian. We can't be in the church of Jesus Christ without faith and repentance. There are those who believe... Uh, there were those who believed that in the word of in the, the gospel in God's salvation of Jesus Christ in that message, and they believed it. They believed that Jesus Christ is the one appointed to, by God to be our Savior. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They believed that Jesus gave the Spirit. They believed that Jesus was the ascended Lord. They believed they had rebelled against God. That they were sinners, and I hope you hear all of that and recognize that's what we believe, and we confess some of it in our creeds. We confess that when we, we stand up and profess our faith or when we first uh, made confession of our faith, we confess these things. Those are essential parts of faith and repentance. These people who heard Peter's message were cut to the heart. They turned to God. They changed. They were reoriented to the new life of Christ. That reorientation is repentance. So these are necessary parts of that new life of Christ. And lastly, there's another component, baptism. Um, Peter says, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Those who heard the word of God, the gospel, believed it, and they were baptized. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So they were joined with Christ. They received his forgiveness and his new life of the Holy Spirit. These are all components of the new life with Christ. But Acts doesn't tell it like I just told it to you. 
it tells it as a, as a story, a great story. And if you heard that story for the very first time, you'd be tuned into it. You'd be excited. You'd be, you'd be enthralled. You'd be interested. What's going on here? You'd want to know more. In the beginning of the book of Acts, there are the basics of being a Christian and about being a church. So I've talked about all these things that uh, do definitely relate to being to the church, but they're also very particular for Christians. Individual Christians need to have faith and repentance and be baptized. But Acts doesn't just begin with talking about how to become a Christian. It talks about the church, the beginning of the church. The crucified, risen Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord, the Holy Spirit, the word and faith and repentance and baptism, all these components, and the church are components of this new life of Christ. Acts says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Well, added to the community of Christians. They were joined together in Christ. And the rest of the New Testament speaks of this community as the church of Jesus Christ. It uses the metaphors, the body of Christ, the family of Christ, temple of Christ, the house of Christ. In other words, a community. All these are ways of talking about the church as a community. And now you, as Christians, you have bowed your knee to the risen, ascended Lord. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You've heard the word of God's salvation. You believe, you repent, you are baptized, and you are in the community of Christ. And that's not something to take for granted. Those are all things that are part of this new life with Christ. And being in the church, in the community of Christ, is one of those uh, very important parts We may seem like we hear a lot about the community of Christ, and I know I've preached this text before. The community of Christ is talked about frequently in the church, but the reason we cannot move past it is because it is a fundamental part of the new life of Christ, not something to take for granted. Well, the community of Christ is a distinctive community. It is a -a one-of-a-kind kind of community in this world, and there are certainly many different kinds of communities Um, And and the problem for the church is that it sometimes wants to sort of mimic those other communities, wants to be like them. And in some ways, it's not going to be able to to not be like them in a few ways. I mean, we are people, we're human beings, we have our ways of coming together. But there are distinct things about the church as a community. These other communities that we're not to be like, and, and, and not trying to step on any toes here, but we're not to be like U of M. University of Michigan and the football fans or MSU. We're not to be like the Rotary Club. Uh, There are all kinds of religious communities, Muslim, Jewish, Unitarian communities, but they're not what we are. There are kinds of political communities, but we're not to be Democrats or Republican communities. We're not to have the Democratic National Convention here in our sanctuary, which would be something, wouldn't it, or a Republican National Convention. We're not to be like a hobby community or a gamer community or communities based on gender identity, which is a new thing happening in the church. Churches are gathered around that. And these communities are engaged in specific activities. They meet together, they eat together, they talk, they read, they listen, they do. Some people have made the superficial conclusion that religious communities are all basically the same. And that's usually, I think, coming from people who aren't in the religious communities. 
The ones who are in the religious communities for the reason that that community exists would know that, no, they're not all the same. But those who are on the outside or in some kind of superficial relationship with religious communities often say that they're basically the same. They're religious. They're the religions of the world, and they kind of get lumped together. To borrow the language of Acts chapter 2, this would be tantamount to saying that the religious communities of the world devoted themselves to religious teaching, to fellowship, to the sacred meals, and to prayer. And generally speaking, that's true for religious communities. They do those things. For example, soon the Jewish community will begin the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year. That's in a week or two. The Muslims, you may not have realized this, but Muslims just finished celebrating the birth of Muhammad. They don't know exactly when Muhammad was born, but they celebrated on September 7th. In both cases, there's food, there's prayers, there's communal gatherings. Muslims, Jews, and Christians have communities. They have meals, prayers, teaching that they follow. However, what Acts is talking about is a distinctive community with distinctive meals and teaching and prayers and, and so on. It's a community set apart from all the other communities in this world, even the religious ones. The community that the Apostle Peter is talking about is the community in relationship to, and this is the key, to the risen and ascended Jesus Christ who gives the Spirit. That's what determines the community. That's what, it, what we're oriented around. That's the basis of our new life. And he sends the word of God's salvation into the world, and we're joined with that community and with Christ through faith, repentance, and baptism. So this community, or the church, filled with the Spirit, is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our scripture reading this morning mentions four things to which the Christian community devoted themselves. They devoted themselves, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to these things as a community together. And this is where I would suggest that every church should get its insight for its vision, if you will. First, Acts says the Christian community is devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles taught the good news of Christ. The apostles proclaimed and taught the word of God's salvation. And the writings of the apostles explain and interpret to the churches in the first century Christ's words and deeds, his teaching and his work. Martin Luther faced, or raised a, an interesting question. Is there a center to the Bible. Does the Bible have a center spot, a central spot? Or is it just all kind of on a flat level, like everything's on the same level? Um, the Jews didn't believe that. The Jews believed the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were the, um, the, 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 the real core of the Old Testament. And then you had the prophets and the wisdom writings that come after, the sort of secondary um, and, the, and those writings and the prophets are sort of based off of the Torah. Is the same thing true in the New Testament? And Luther would say yes, and I am inclined to agree with him. The Gospels, the four Gospels are sort of the core of the New Testament, and all the other writings are based off of the Gospels. They're, they're teaching the Gospels. They're explaining what Christ said and did to the churches that had started. And I think that's a helpful way to understand it. It's also why in our worship... We don't just have one reading, which you know could be First Peter today. We also have the gospel reading. Um, we always include the gospel reading because that is uh, brings us back to the center 
of the teaching of the apostles. So the, what are the apostles doing with all those letters, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians? They're really working out and explaining to the church what it means to what Jesus did and said and what it means for the church in that time. It, so it's something for you to think about. That's what Peter was doing on the day of Pentecost, which was in our lesson this morning. The, the apostles proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the Jews there who were gathered in front of him when the proselytes, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, the Romans, by God raised, but God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see what Peter's doing there? He's, he's explaining, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's working off of what the gospel declares and what, what it tells us about Jesus, and he's bringing that message to the people who were gathered there on that day of Pentecost. The apostles proclaim that Jesus Christ is God's Son, who descended from David according to the flesh and was designated Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, this is the apostles' words, but it's working with the gospel. It's explaining the gospel of what Jesus said and did. So the community of Christ listens to that proclamation, that apostolic proclamation of the gospel. The Christian community devotes itself to what the apostles of Jesus Christ said. And it doesn't devote itself. It does not lift up as the teaching that it's going to follow uh, any other kind of teaching. It doesn't lift anything else up as the core, essential teaching that we want to hear and to follow. We are a church. The Christian church is gathered around the teaching of the apostles. The community as a whole devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching of Jesus Christ together. They gathered around it. They listened to it. They tuned into it whenever the apostles taught. So Acts is full of stories of the apostles, Peter, Paul, the others going out, and people gathering around to hear them teach the gospel and, and um, what that means for the church. The, these words were not like any other words. And the early church heard that. They knew that. They recognized this is something else. This is something different. Jesus' words and deeds came with the authority of God. Mark chapter 1 says Jesus taught as one with authority. So they're hearing these words with the authority of God. And they were the words and deeds of the Lord. Um, the, the Christian community endeavored to live according to the apostolic teaching. The apostles said Jesus Christ has died to the old life, been raised to the new. You've been joined with him. This is the kind of language Paul uses in Ephesians 4. Therefore, the practices of the old life are put off. Christians are to stop doing those old practices, the practices of the sinful world. Instead, the practices of his new life are put on you, and you are to do those things. So it's, it's uh, the word that they're hearing works itself out that they are to live and practice those things in the church. In the Nicene Creed, we have a line towards the end of it that says, uh, we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And when we say apostolic church, we're talking about the church gathered around the apostles' teaching. Not some other kind of teaching. So, 
that is uh, one of those things that, that Peter was uh, preaching and in, in, uh, setting out there before the crowd that was gathered there on that day of Pentecost. The Christian community is also devoted to fellowship. This is the association or community of the church. Again, there were lots of associations and communities in the first century world. Greek and Roman, they had all kinds, symposiums, where they would meet together. The philosophers loved to gather together and their disciples, and they'd sit around a table and they'd eat a big meal. We can read about um, the symposium, like in um, what's one of uh, Plato's writings about Socrates. And so these were very common things, and there were, there were associations for women, there were associations for men, um, all kinds of trade guilds, and they would gather together. Again, the Christian community is a fellowship not like those. In, in some respects, you can see a group of people gathered together, but otherwise, it's not that. It's a, a very distinct kind of community. It's the church's interrelationship. So we're being together, we're doing things for each other, talking to each other, helping each other, and you might say, well, that's what any community does. But charity, the charity of Christ, the love of Christ, is the hallmark of this fellowship. And our reading says they had, things, they had things in common. They gave to those in need. They spent time together. And they didn't just do it around anything. They were doing it in the name of Christ. They were doing it as Christians. They were devoted to this fellowship. And this is one of those things that will never, ever work with a virtual kind of church. They cannot gather in person and hug each other. And, uh, you know, lift up, help somebody, walk in the, the building, um, those kinds of things. That, that's something that requires in-person presence. They were, developed, uh, they were devoted to this kind of fellowship. It was this, it's on the same order as the apostles' teaching and the breaking and the bread and the prayers. This fellowship is one of those essential parts of the community of Christ. This fellowship is essential for Christ's followers to be a real, thriving functioning community, alive, virtual. Whoever says that virtual media is alive, that's, I guess some people say that, but it's hard to see how that's alive. It, 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 it communicates something, it's media, broadcasts something towards us, but I don't know you'd say it in and of itself is alive, it's just software. Um, of course, they're trying to make it alive with AI, but... Um, I read something recently that says AI can only be retrospective, can only look back at use things that have already been produced. It can't be imaginative. It can't look forward. It can't uh, create something brand new. Um, anyway, so here we are at Providence. We meet to, to worship together. We have our fellowship meals. We eat together after worship. We invite each other to our homes. We try to help each other when there's a problem And all of that is interpersonal relation. It's a community. And we're doing it according to the apostles' teaching in the name of Christ. Such relationships require sacrifice. And each society, Christians in every society, the sacrifice is going to be different. So right now, for instance, in Pakistan, there are Christians meeting and they're hiding. And the sacrifice is literally with their property and lives as they go out to worship somewhere, probably in in hiding, because they're being attacked. And there are people there trying to hunt them down and kill them. There's a sacrifice to go and worship with the church there, to be together. Here in the United States, the sacrifice is different. Nobody tried to attack you as you came to the church today. 
but you uh, still have sacrifices you have to make with your money, with your time, your schedule, your home, um, all those kinds of things. So there's always going to be a sacrifice involved with the fellowship of the church. The Christian community, says Peter, is devoted to the breaking of the bread. Notice it says the breaking of the bread. It is possible, and later on in the chapter it says breaking of bread, which could be a regular meal. But when you have the definite article in the front of it, which is, is, would be there in the Greek, the breaking of the bread. In the Gospel of Luke and Acts, that refers to the communion meal. It's a specific breaking of bread. And at first, when the early church gathered together, they ate a large meal together. That's how it started. When Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, there was a big Passover meal going on. So they were eating the parts of the Passover meal. And then within that meal, he took the bread, he took one of the cups of wine, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. So for a while, the church continued to have these large feasts together, and then they would, um, they would separate out the, the Lord's Supper, and they would observe that. They would eat that together. So kind of a meal within a meal. But eventually, the communion meal is isolated from the larger feast. And so today, we have what some would say a very small, skimpy kind of meal up here. It's not. It's loaded with grace. But it, looks, it doesn't look like a huge, giant feast. Um, and that's what it's come down to, is the, just the focus on the bread and the cup itself. And in this way, Christians have devoted themselves to the communion meal, to celebrating and participating in the communion meal. It's a meal of thanksgiving, the meal of our communion with the crucified and risen Lord. When the church is joined together in Christ, he presents himself at this meal. He instituted it in person, and he continues to be present by the Holy Spirit, and he nourishes us with it. The Christian community does not neglect the communion feast with our Lord. The Gospel of Luke says the risen Jesus was with the disciples. He took the bread, he blessed and broke it, gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. We come to this meal, and I always try to preface it and bring us to it, to the table, with our eyes set upon Jesus Christ in faith. And it's interesting how Christians are... are so easy, it's so easy for us to just skip the meal or not to even offer it to the members of the church, which is kind of like saying, we're not going to sit down with you today, Jesus. Can you imagine if the president of the United States, and maybe, maybe you don't want this president, but some president of the United States um, invited you to come to the White House and you could sit and meet with him and uh, just taking away all of our angst about all the different presidents. If it just was a president who did this, wouldn't you make the effort to be there? You would want to sit down with him in, present, in person. And how much more so the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to be present with us. He's important. He's superior. He's, he's uh, the, the one who's our Lord and our Savior. We would want to come and sit down with him. Finally, the Christian community is devoted to the prayers. Notice it says, the prayers. Again, it's not general prayers. It's not whatever prayers they made up. It's talking about definite prayers. Christ's disciples used certain specific prayers, and we have evidence of that in the first century. Acts doesn't really spell out what these prayers were, but most likely they were the familiar prayers of the Psalms, which are used a lot in the New Testament. Psalms are prayers. Um, different kinds of prayers, but nevertheless, there were also something called the 18 benedictions that were used in the synagogues, and it's not a 
a, it's a reasonable assumption that the Christians who were Jews coming out of the synagogues knew those prayers, and there's nothing wrong with those prayers, and they could be tweaked to be uh, Christian prayers, and so they might have continued to use the 18 benedictions, blessed, O Lord, art you for the bread we receive this day, and, and it goes on. And so they could have been used as well, or forms of them. The Lord's Prayer, early church would have prayed the Lord's Prayer, and then there were new Christian prayers that were written. So together they prayed these prayers. But in all these ways, our reading from Acts shows us the community of Christ in a distinctive way. And we begin to catch a vision of the church and its life together with this. Now, there are strong forces at work against the community of Christ. There are strong, powerful forces against it, against the community of the church. Why is being a community so hard for the church? Why do we avoid it and run from it? Why do we so easily reject it? Why do we think we can be good Christians by ourselves? It's because there are strong forces at work against the community of Christ. Now, our scripture reading this morning has been interpreted as an idyllic picture of the early church. Idyllic, you know, this, this beautiful little calm pastoral scene where every, all the sheep are grazing happily and peacefully. And it, so it's been interpreted that way. It's like a memory of a wonderful family celebration, perhaps a birthday party where dad sat there and mom sat over there. Grandpa held Cousin Sally on his lap. Everyone's laughing and talking and singing. And what we tend to overlook in our memory of our family, and I do this a lot, I tend to make things rosy. I, I tend to uh, romanticize the past. So we, we tend to overlook is the toy that's broken in the corner and why it's broken, or the tears in Aunt Millie's eyes because she just had a fight with Uncle Harold, or the lateness of Johnny coming to the party because he was out drinking all night. After our lesson this morning, Acts goes on to tell us the story of Ananias and Sapphira and their deceit within the Christian community. Acts isn't trying to hide anything. And from the rest of Acts and the letters of the apostles, we learned that everything was not perfect in the early church. It had its problems. The community had its struggles. It had its disagreements and so on. Our reading is not saying that the early church had it all together. That's not what it's for. It's pointing us to the distinctiveness of the Christian community. Why is this community, the church, different from all those other associations and churches and, and temples in the first century? Well, there are powers at work against being the community of Christ. There are things that want to rip us apart, to pull us away. They, uh, For example, there are the powers of idealism and perfectionism. If only the church today had it all together like the early church. I hear this often from people who've dropped out. Under these forces, the Christian community today is judged as inferior because <clears throat> the early church had it all together, right? It was idyllic. It was perfect. So why can't the church today be like that? It must be there's something seriously wrong with the church today. No, there's something seriously wrong with that person's assumption about the early church. And so if we have that uh, expectation of perfection and idealism, we'll always be looking for the perfect church. And, of course, you know what the answer to that is. You'll never find it. Um, there is the power of sin that works against the community of Christ. There's the sin of lying and not forgiving, gossiping, judging, and all these things mitigate against Christian community. Thinking that we're self-sufficient is a big one in the United States working against the community of the church. Uh, once I was traveling through northern Kansas 
and I stopped at a cafe and ate a sandwich. If you ever do that in some little small town, be ready. I wasn't ready. So seated at the other tables were farmers taking a midday break from their work, and there were a few other travelers like me, but it was a very small diner. And some older, scruffy-looking man approached me, and he began talking pleasantries with me, kind of seated a couple tables over. And after some chit-chat, he began to talk about the gospel. So I listened, and then I told him I'm a Christian and asked him what church he was a part of. He bristled, and in so many words, he told me churches were a waste of time and he did not belong to one. The idea that I came to Christ on my own, that I can read the Bible all by myself, that I can share the gospel on my own, that I can do everything the church does by myself, that's all basically just exposing this self-sufficiency that we think we have as Christians. But does Christ give all his gifts to one of us? Does he give us the gifts of the Spirit to be used just for ourselves? Does he create a community of one? There's nothing in Scripture that, that suggests that. In fact, there are many things that say, no, he doesn't do that at all. Also, the market of choices is a force against the Christian community. It's like, it's like a buffet at a restaurant. So there's always something else to try. I, I read somewhere, I can't remember the number now, but there are thousands of churches, because you have so many non-denominational churches that sort of say they stand alone, they're independent. So you have the mainline churches, you have other denominations, and then you have all these non-denominational. If you kind of put them all together, if you add them all up, you end up with thousands of churches. And I, I keep thinking, why do we need to start a new denomination? Or you know, some denomination breaks off and is going to start, go off on their own and start a new one. I just keep thinking... There are, if you can't find a group to join <laughs> that's already out there, there is something wrong because there are so many different options, so many churches, um, and, and yet we, we want to bounce around. It creates the problem of just bouncing around between them. And sometimes it's necessary to leave a denomination. I've done that. But far too often people leave churches for reasons that are unacceptable, It's easier to leave than to work through the problems. It's easier to hold on to how we think the church should be rather than to humbly relinquish our demands to Christ who oversees and shepherds the flock of his people. And I might add that the virtual technology isn't helping. Uh, We use it because we do have some shut-ins. We do have some people who can catch it, and uh, it it can be helpful, and we, we do use that. So all of you who are listening or will listen to this on Facebook, don't shut it off. But um, we're glad that that we can have this service for you, but should never be in place if we are at all able to be uh, in person with worship. We should always do that. And and I've explained that. I mean, it's it's the communion meal. It's the the hugging each other. It's looking each other in the eyes. It's the, the real time. Um, and the fact that the Holy Spirit's at work here in a special way. Those are things you can't communicate through media. These powers push against the community of the church. So let's pretend our scripture lesson from the beginning of Acts reads a little differently. So the lesson we heard from Acts this morning, let's pretend it reads a little differently. Let's say it reads like this. And they did not devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did not devote themselves to fellowship. They did not devote themselves to the breaking of bread. They did not devote themselves to the prayers. What do you think would happen to the church if that was the case? What do you think would be the rest of the story? Well, I think it would have, it, Acts would be about four chapters long instead of 28. 
it would just fall flat. There wouldn't be a distinctive community of Christ in this world. The word of God's salvation would not have spread over the world. The Christians would not have matured and grown in the Lord in, in the churches. The community of Christ is a fundamental part of God's salvation for us. And you'll notice the title for the sermon, No Christ Without the Church. It's a, the church is fundamental. It doesn't save us, but it's fundamental. It's what Christ created to give us life and to help us have life as Christians. It's fundamental um, for God's work of salvation for us. So here's the good news. The story of Acts does not read that way. Jesus Christ has risen. He's overcome all those powers and many more that come against the community of his people. And those forces do show up. We might find some of them in ourselves, but Christ has overcome them. They shall not prevail against Christ or his church. And therefore, the story of Scripture reads like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. May God hold us together as the community of Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, who shows to them that are in error the light of your truth, with the intent that they may return to the way of righteousness, we thank you for how you have given us these things and brought us together in this life of Christ with the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, the prayers. We thank you for that. We pray that we would always uh, avail ourselves of these means, of these uh, things, and that we would not avoid them so that we would continue to grow in our profession of Christ, in our love for one another, and in our mission to the world. And we ask this all in Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand, let us confess our faith, and look for that line in the creed about the um, apostolic church. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 140, O Word of Christ Incarnate.
Scripture says you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, as if we could pay off God, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. It's by the sacrifice of Christ that we are ransomed. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We receive Christ, or let's say that he comes and is present with us as he makes himself known in scripture, sermon, and sacrament. Having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us now come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized, profess faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life in Christ and our salvation. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks, great thanks, for your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who, though he was equal with you, became a man and lived among us as the servant of our salvation. He came to lead us in the way of true life, to suffer and die in order to free us from sin, to bear the cost of our sin, and to be raised into new life for us, into which he brings us. He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He is the beginning of this new creation, and therefore all of he- with all of heaven we praise your great and glorious name. And we join in that song, In Heaven. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. We pray now that you would consecrate this bread and cup by your Spirit so that we may be fed by our Lord Jesus Christ as we remember his death in faith. May our eating and drinking strengthen and refresh our communion with him and with each other. We thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one and together with all your saints, we have been joined with Christ. We praise you and glorify you forever, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all good things come, who has blessed us in the Spirit, and to whom is all the honor, along with you, Almighty Father, now and forever. Together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
said, Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for calling us out of darkness and into your glorious light. We thank you that you have fed us in the sacrament, united us with Christ, given us a foretaste of the heavenly banquet in your eternal kingdom. Strengthen our faith, increase our love for one another, and send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to to your praise and glory. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number four. I'm not sure that's right. 431. 431. The parting hymn we say. Please be seated as we take a look at our announcements. Um, we do have our Christian education class today. We will be doing our, uh, holding our next to last class on the book Gentle and Lowly. We'll have a summary 
um, lesson next week. And then on October 8th, we begin a new series of classes on, uh, entitled Narrative Apologetics, the narrative aspect of the Christian life, the narratives that are in the world, and the narrative aspect of the Christian life. Um, so prepare for that. Look forward to it. Yes? No high school class today. There will not be a high school class today. So you're free to join the adult class. Thursday Bible study on the development of the Christian canon begins September 28th. So that's not far off. Also, we have uh, a number of conferences taking place this fall. I see two here on the same uh, weekend. The one in the bulletin is at University Reformed in Lansing with Carl Truman speaking uh, on a, uh, the theme of the strange new world. Um, that's, uh, that's good. As he, he talks about how sort of culture has gotten to the place we are. And on that same weekend, over at Oakland Hills, is a conference on worship. Um, Dr. R. Scott Clark from Westminster West, I believe it's Westminster West, is talk, speaking on Is All of Life Worship? D.G. Hart out at Hillsdale College is in the same conference talking uh, about why well-ordered worship is good for us. And then Kim Riddlebarger, who, um, I don't know if he still is in the White Horse Inn podcast. Apparently he still is involved in White Horse Inn. He is, his topic is frequent feeding, communion as nourishing worship. And I believe there's another conference that Denine sent an email. Did you send an email out, Denine, about a conference at uh, Harvest? Van Til, yeah, there's a, yeah, so a lot going on there, so. Um, if I might add, for the conference in Lansing with Carl Truman, you have to register for that, so the website's there, but the others, I think you can just walk in. I believe the, uh, the tickets go on sale July 20th, so we're behind here. Um, for, this, is for the, this is for the Oakland Hills. This is called the Great Lakes Reform Conference okay. at Oakland Hills. Tickets are $15. Okay. And you do have to buy a ticket to attend. Okay? And that is all I have. Deneen. There is women's prayer this Thursday night. Oh, okay. Women's prayer meeting at the Roberts home this Thursday morning. Very good.